0: Welcome, everybody. This is your host, Kiefer, with another podcast, and this is a little preamble to the podcast today, to this podcast, which I was able to get rocky on Dr. Patel, so uh, there's some, you know, frontline information in this one, and we discuss a lot, um, but there's a, a couple things that I wanted to preface this with, and one of them Is that I was advised by a couple people who've listened to this that I should Censor a comment that I made And if I'm gonna censor the comment, I'm going to do it in the style of R-rated movies that have been voiced over for network television So you'll probably hear that at some point. You might also hear some weird uh, clips or dead spots and that's because my coughing took over when we recorded this and I couldn't get it under control so there might might be some weird dead spots that you might hear but I did not cut out any content this is pretty much free form and I also want to warn everybody that there's a lot of rehashing in this podcast because the estimates I made I, I think that was what over a month ago at this point with the first few episodes about covid and yes this is another covid podcast my my models were pretty good and now the and they really clashed with health organizations that were saying america was going to see 1 million 2 million deaths up to 10 million deaths from this thing and and this was coming from the white house dr fauci had made these comments severally and now Suddenly, and I don't know what's changed. They said their models are projecting 100,000 to 200,000 deaths in the United States, which is a definite tragedy. But again, had they modeled it appropriately, the first time they would have seen that the window was between 90,000 deaths and and half a million deaths. Uh, again. Uh, those numbers are still on the table. I, I'm not sure how they're limiting it to 200,000 deaths. I think at this point they're trying not to scare people. Um, but so a lot of this information might feel like rehashing. And then after the podcast, I'm I'm going to say exactly what I did medication wise while I had what. It's presumably COVID. All the symptoms and now even the aftermath symptoms are are following the trend. And I'll explain what those are also at the end of the podcast. So, hope everybody enjoys this. It's going to be a little bit long because there's this uh, preamble. There's the podcast, which is a full hour. And at the end, I'll just tack on a quick burst of information and one clarification about the potential dangers of how countries are trying to cope with it at the moment and how this could cause rhythmic economic shutdowns over the next two years and also double the number of potential deaths. I'll I'll explain one thing that that's predicated on that we didn't discuss during the podcast. I'll explain that after. So I hope everybody listens and makes it to the, I guess, the addendum that I'll add to the end all right I hope everybody enjoys this is a somewhat of an impromptu podcast and we're going to cover a lot of stuff probably the coronavirus but today I've got Rocky on the phone who informed me that his brain's kind of mush from working with patients all day and this COVID stuff but We thought we would hash out some of the numbers and what some of these numbers mean and what could be more realistic numbers and why we're seeing so much chaos in the United States right now around all the numbers um, and and some other assorted stuff. So thanks for ending your day with a podcast, Rocky.
1: Hey, Kiefer, no problem. Uh, You know, it's always fun to come on and and talk about all the great stuff that we talk about. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, we, unfortunately uh, we're like in the middle of this pandemic, so it's not mostly a lot of the fun stuff that I'm usually working with patients on these days, but you know, it, it is what almost every other healthcare provider is dealing with right now in the United States, so I think it's quite relevant.
0: Yeah, I think that's it's what every healthcare provider all over the world is dealing with right now pretty much. Oh yeah, for sure. It's um I don't, I mean, it hasn't changed my life very drastically, but it's because I'm in isolation most of the time anyway, doing work at my place. So, you know, I can't go to coffee shops anymore, which I guess kind of pisses me off. But otherwise, in that respect, it hasn't affected me a ton. I know it's for you, it's really probably in, increased the headache of people wondering about like whatever?
1: Um, I mean, I think like probably two weeks ago, um, there's a lot more, um, anxiety and panic because it was just kind of now on the forefront of the, of the United States and, um, testing started becoming more widely available, And, and, you know, honestly, we haven't had testing in the United States on uh, availability basis, probably just it just started like over the last two and a half weeks. So I think once testing became online in the United States, um, that raised um, more um, um, awareness in the public. And, you know, then it was the onslaught of everyone want to get tested. And the problem was we didn't have enough tests to do mass testing. So we're basically going off the CDC guidelines of who we're going to test. Um, just because, in general, the majority of the patients that get this virus, um, number one, end up having mild symptoms. And, you know, they'll get better over the, the two-week period of time that we, we usually have them – self, we're, we're having them self-isolate. Uh, <coughs> and so Or they were asymptomatic, you know, community spreaders that, you know, right. they didn't have symptoms, and but they wanted to get tested. But uh, we just didn't have the, the availability for that. So, um, yeah, it's been – Excuse my periodic coughing. I'll, I'll try to cover it up as much as I can. No worries. <laughs> so I, I think the frustration from a provider standpoint is the lack of testing we've had in the United States. Um, it's starting to improve. Um, I think Abbott's got this now point of care test that's available. It just came online this like end of last week, beginning of this week. But even that's got a backlog. Um, company I work with um, has ordered these Kits that we can use in the office, but they're on backlog, so we don't really know when we're going to be getting them. Um, and so uh, we've we've done nationwide. We've done, you know, our company has done quite a few tests. We started doing drive-through clinics as well. And here in Phoenix, we actually have taken one of our offices and has, have we dedicated it basically just to seeing patients with rep- respiratory symptoms and or testing, so that mm-hmm. we were not cross-contaminating our offices as well. So. Right. So, again, I think it's, it's like we're still walking around and treating patients with our like one eye closed and one eye open because we don't really know what the real data is. And I think we were kind of talking about that before we just got on the, the podcast is that it just, you know, we're looking at all these extrapolating numbers and, you know, it's, it's like almost, almost random at this point because you don't have real numbers to base them off of. Well, way. I mean, we have we have numbers from around the other parts of the world and we can extrapolate from that. But right. Uh, I, and I I mean, the the one thing
0: is the way I look at it is the numbers from around the world are all like very consistently in line with each other. So I think there are some there. They're no longer extrapolations as far as a couple of things that we can know. Like even if we're not we're not getting everybody who's infected, even if you just look at hospitalizations in some com- countries, like Brazil is only testing uh, people that come into the hospital who are who are sick enough to be hospitalized. Serbia is doing the same thing. So even if you look at hospitalization numbers, those are still growing at the correct rate. And then you can just take that number and assume we've got very good numbers for the number of hospitalizations tends to be about 5% of the total number of people who have it. So those can give us really, really good base numbers right now. Like we don't really have to extrapolate to get those numbers. And that, that was, that was what I was saying before this. Like we do have some, some really good numbers. Yeah. We don't have totals, but growth rate won't depend on totals. Um, and making some guess of how many people are symptomatic versus hospitalizations, that also won't matter for total total number of people infected.
1: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, like I said, here in the States, since we've only been testing for about two and a half weeks now, the numbers that we're seeing roll through now with the significant increases in certain parts of the country and certainly stability in other parts that have kind of been instituting um, shelter at home, um, you can kind of see those numbers kind of playing out now. It's still probably a little early. Um, uh, I know I saw an article today showing number of cases per 100,000 population. And obviously, like New York City is one of the top ones in the country. And California, which has been really doing shelter at home for several weeks now, um, is one of the lower ones in the country. I know here in Phoenix, we're at about, I think, 16 cases per 100,000 population. Mm-hmm. Um so um and we actually the governor here just instituted they didn't call it shelter at home, they basically called it stay at home, which is um it it's it really irks me because they've already actually recommended that patients here in Arizona or people in Arizona stay at home and only go out for you know essential issues and, and avoid non-essential um activity in the public and even our restaurants and bars are still open for carry out and delivery and so they came out with this kind of stay at home release today which basically says the same thing you know do what you're doing right now i think it was more it sounds more like a pr piece than anything else i haven't had a chance to completely read the uh, the mandate that was issued i just kind of read the news release at lunch today but it's like you know it's almost like putting you know you know lipstick on a pig i mean <laughs> <so>. yeah <laughs>
0: Well, the whole thing with these curfews and the shelter in place and the stay at home, the thing is, those have never been tested in real life. You know, everybody's trying to emulate what China did, but China, literally nobody could leave their apartments, period, for any reason, and everything was delivered to them. And that, that quelched the growth there, as far as we know. And but this other model where you're having people shelter in place and only go out periodically, you know, that's basically what they're they're doing here in Serbia as well. Models of that show that it makes no difference in the spread. And we can see that like Germany's been shelter in place for weeks now. Essentially, they're having normal spread rates. Um, Italy has been shelter. I mean, like serious lockdown for a month. They're still having the same spread rate. And it's because the people still have – even though you've isolated all those networks, they they all reconnect at the nodes, and those nodes are grocery stores or pharmacies or parks where they can still go to for exercise. So unless those nodes are totally eliminated, we know from, from models of pandemics that it, this shelter-in-place is just totally fucking useless.
1: Like it has to be all – Or nothing. So, I completely concur with that as well. I mean, you know, I I had mentioned that California had shelter in place, but I saw a tweet earlier today about a a a farmers market in Brentwood in L.A. and it was like just teeming with people.
0: (laughs) Yeah, as as long (laughs) as you let those nodes continue to exist, then you don't slow the spread of it at all. And we've seen that in every country that has not completely locked down. Um, So I think it's kind of stupid and. You could get the same effect of what they're doing now with much simpler procedures like saying, "Okay, you can only go to work and home and issuing literally issuing tickets to certain places. So whatever coffee shops are close to you, you can apply to your top ones and every coffee shop can hand out, say, like 100 tickets broken up into time slots. And that is the only coffee shop you can go to. Same thing with grocery stores. If you do that, you eliminate all the cross connections.
1: Oh, oh yeah, I, I, for sure. And I'll give you an yeah. example. Um, you know, we've had this like this toilet paper. I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, but <laughs> people losing their minds and thinking that, you know, there's yeah. not going to be any more toilet paper in the world. And so my
0: friend calls it the new toilet paper economy. And oh, she says she, she's, comf- she's comfortably middle class in the new toilet paper economy.
1: It, it's insanity. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's pure stupidity. But, I mean, I for example, I went out uh, not this weekend, the weekend before on a Sunday. I went, got up early <laughs> before the store opened. Uh, it was at a, a chain. And I got there like 15 minutes before the store opened. And there's this line out the door. And obviously nobody's staying the dist- proper distance apart from each other. And it's like – and you've seen the reports of these lines outside Costco. Um, I was at Trader Joe's a couple weeks ago, and Trader Joe's – this was even more, more stupidity. So they would basically have people queue up at Trader Joe's when they opened. Again, nobody practicing you know social distancing within the queue. And then they would only let 20 people in the store at a time. And then as people would leave, they'd let another person in the store. So they were, they were you know doing the in-store distancing. But it didn't matter because you're still waiting in line next to who knows who, you know. Well, and people touch stuff in the grocery store. It doesn't
0: matter if there's only 20 people in there. Everybody yeah. who goes through the store that day has connected to that node and then they go out and they continue to spread it and that's that's what you could actually get the economy working basically i mean of course restaurants would see a downturn in uh, i think restaurants are one of the things you kind of have to close because it's really hard to tell people well you can only go to this one restaurant for the next month because usually people don't want the same food every day for a month but coffee shops, grocery stores work, uh, even bars to a certain extent. like so in those scenarios, you could have the exact same effect of a total lockdown while not ruining the economy in the process. and and I'm not saying that we should trade the trade lives for a healthy economy because w- we would basically have the exact same effect. It would be a neutral effect without, the negative outcomes on the economy at this point um because I, I mean that's the stupid thing like we know from models that this like haphazard uh shelter in place but go out for necessities just it doesn't work it doesn't slow down the spread like there's so many models that demonstrate that it's it's like who whoever even thought this was a good idea like you were talking about the farmers market so all week here in Serbia Farmers markets are closed down, like all of coffee shops, all of those things are closed down. But here's their stroke of brilliance. From Friday to Sunday, all the farmers markets can be open. <laughs> so, you, so it's like, so guess where everybody's gathers on the weekends? Yeah. In the damn farmers market.
1: So, and, and you, I'm sure if if you track the testing, you'd see the testing probably just kind of go up and down with the with the uh, events that are occurring like that, you know. Yeah. And you get the results following five to seven days later, I would assume. Yeah. No, it's it's
0: ridiculous.
1: I think the other thing that you know you mentioned health versus economy is you know obviously there there's a little there's a higher mortality rate with you know COVID than it is like with influenza. I think that's been. Uh, However, you want to talk about it from a number standpoint or polarization standpoint, You know, um, it, it is the mortality rate is higher. Um, I think it's been pretty consistent worldwide from the numbers I've seen. The interesting thing in, a, in the United States is I'm not sure it is on other parts of the world, probably here just because we don't have the testing available, is that if you get admitted to a hospital. And let's say you get you get into the intensive care unit and you you have respiratory failure and you get intubated and placed on the ventilator. If you die in the ICU before your COVID testing comes back from the lab, uh, regardless if that COVID testing is positive, your death is not attributed to COVID. Which was uh, I, I, I found that you know quite fascinating that in terms of you know will it skew the mortality numbers a whole lot? Probably not, but there's still probably a significant amount of population that end up dying from COVID that may not be statistically counted in the mortality rate. You know, is it going to push it 10 percent? No. But I mean, yeah, you know, it's just another part of this kind of circle of stupidity that, you know, we're trying to assume we're tracking this and then we're not getting accurate numbers even on the mortality side. Yeah. Well, even on
0: my the second podcast I did on this where I had a chance to research past pandemics and look at initial mortality rates versus what they were able to figure out when they figure out how many people actually had had the viruses and stuff and initial mortality rates are always 10 to 100 times higher than what it comes out at the end when they can you know have antibody tests so they figure out who had it and now has immunity and things like that yeah and and what's funny is in the new york times yesterday a piece was published where where two epidemiologists are like, look, if you look at the numbers and you look at past pandemics, then the mortality rate for this is probably 10 to 100 times larger than what it will be in the end. And I'm like, ah, why, why is this coming out like a month or two later? You know, I said the exact same thing and I was able to I just access publicly available data on like tons and tons of different pandemics um, and almost always it it, cut, it drops to like one-tenth of what was initially thought. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be the case here, but we do have an example in Germany. Everybody's amazed because Germany's death rate is so low, but they're one of the few countries that are testing everybody. They're doing half a million tests a week. So they have some of the best numbers of total infections, and their mortality
1: rate is down at uh, 0.5%. And, and I think that you know, and 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 to go beyond mortality, then here you know, I think what you've seen is the stories of the healthcare usage in hospitals. Because mm-hmm. the one thing that this virus does differently, let's say, than influenza, is that you know, and we talked about this, I think via text a couple of weeks ago, is that if you end up in the ICU and you end up on a ventilator, it's not like three to five days and you're off the vent. You know, you're on the vent on average, you know. 14, 21 days, and I think that that's part of the issue as well, and we can go into the whole point of whether, you know, if you're going to, if you get COVID and you end up in respiratory distress, you know, does it make sense to even intubate you, but I mean, uh, obviously, numbers wise, it may not make sense, but psychologically, of course, you know, we're trying to save every patient, and, you know, obviously, if it's your mother, your daughter, your son, that you know, you're going to want everything done, but... But that's yeah. a other that's other main issue in terms of, of hospital resources that's different with this virus compared to let's say influenza, even though maybe in the long run when we look at the data and we have real numbers, maybe the mortality is gonna be about the same, but the 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 resource use in the hospital from hospitalization is significantly different. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's
0: gonna come out to be about uh... Anywhere between five and ten times the mortality of the flu. so between point point five and one percent, uh, which like I'm not saying that's great. It's still horrific. it it, it will still be a significant loss of life. Um, but to to bring bring the audience up to speed of our conversation via text, uh, I we started that because I said I was trying to dig in and find what was the mortality rate for people once they were on a ventilator and that data is incredibly hard to come by and i think because what little i could find was terrible if you and and uh, and i still don't have better numbers than this and i hope that these aren't accurate numbers for as many ventilators as as we're trying to acquire but it's basically you have a 1 in 2,000 chance. If you go into respiratory failure and you're on a ventilator,
1: you have a 1 in 2,000 chance of surviving. And, and that's... And, and, and that's probably all comers. And I would say it's probably even worse if you've got some type of comorbid condition like diabetes or you know, hypertension yeah. or something like that. And that's what brought
0: up our conversation. So the question is... What you're doing in a majority of these cases is wait. I don't want to say wasting, but you're using ICU resources on people that you cannot save. And so the question becomes: Do you, are you just torturing the majority of these people for two to three weeks uh, while their body fails, uh, if you really have no hope of saving them? Or, and then it brings into question: Well, should Why are we trying to ramp up so many ventilators when ventilators at the moment, I know the media loves to say it. They're like ventilators save lives at the moment. The data doesn't say that, unfortunately. I mean, that's it's and it's really terrible. It's terrible because we
1: have no treatment for this. And and I think, you know, the other thing would be like when you're in places like, let's say, Louisiana or New York City, where there is definitely a shortage Of equipment, then the ethical question then becomes: Is you know, do you prioritize an individual that has, uh, for lack of a better term, a more healthy health background or not having chronic health conditions, uh, priority versus someone who has you know some type of condition that's going to make them much higher risk for death? Um, But obviously, that's an ethical question you know to to debate. It, it is, but it's, it's not an unheard of ethical question
0: is the interesting thing. I mean, so uh, Americans, we're so far removed from any tragedies anymore, like Vietnam War or Korea War. I mean, they have a word for doing that, and it's triage. And Americans were really familiar with that concept during, of all things, the TV show M.A.S.H., because everybody who came in for any type of surgery or whatever, and they talked about it often, they had to go through triage because they had to figure out who they could help, who needed the help right now, and who they couldn't help. And, that, and the, the concept of triage is definitely unenviable. I would not, in any circumstance, want to be the
1: person trying to make those decisions. And obviously oh. that, that sense of triage is easy when we decide who we're going to test versus who we're going to ventilate, right? There's a big gap yeah. there. Yeah,
0: of- <laughs> like testing everybody, that's fine. And then if somebody gets sick to the point of respiratory failure, being that person that has to decide on the probability of success, I, I mean you're you're taking away any chance – Of success for the people that are very low probability and uh, like I would not want to be that person. I know that's already happening. Is it Chicago? They already released their guidelines of how they would do triage uh, when they when they saturated their ventilator usage.
1: Uh, I haven't seen that article. I've been kind of absorbed in my own practice. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine.
0: Um, and, you know, the hospitals are already preparing for that. And and that's the thing. Like, we've already addressed the ethics of these things. And I'm not saying the ethics of them are easy or simple or even desirable, but it's kind of the best you can do in emergency situations. And and this is an emergency situation. And and the problem is, for, again, for most people – this isn't dangerous. Like I'm, we're we're talking with Rocky and the symptoms I had and everything I went through were pretty positive that I had COVID. Um, and I'm still reeling from, I have some shortness of breath and some coughing that periodically keeps affecting me. And I'm, I'm still tired a lot. Um, but like I couldn't even get testing, but most, most people I would imagine I'm probably kind of the normal case. I had, Four days of hellish lung stuff, really hard time breathing. I mean, uh, this is a very crass uh, simile, (laughs) but I was talking to one of my friends and I was joking and I was like, I was sucking on my inhaler like a A stray corn cob. I was like, you wouldn't believe I way overdosed on that, but like, I, I mean, I couldn't breathe. Some of the times like I I was really way overdosing, but it got my breathing working again. Uh, So I was probably worse than normal. I would say as far as my lung condition, but, you know, I have the history of bronchitis and pneumonia and stuff like that. So I kind of expected it. Um, And I'm kind of wondering how many people are going into the hospital that are labeled as critical that really could get by with self-medicating with an inhaler like I will endure a ton of shit to avoid the hospital and I know that's not the normal mentality in a lot of places a lot of people any minor thing and they're going to the hospital and I'm the complete opposite I mean my lips and part of my face would have had to have turned to blue before I went to the hospital
1: Yeah. I, you know, I think that's going to be more difficult to say because at least from a primary care standpoint, we would have been really, really stressing to patients that unless you have severe symptoms, just stay home. (laughs) And, and and we've been, we've been directing them, at least in our practice through uh, phone visits. We're doing um, virtual visits now. Uh, We're doing, um, we actually have a virtual care team on our, in our, in our company that also manages a lot of this, but uh, I think that, um, majority of patients that end up at ER, they should, they typically are going to be in really severe respiratory distress They're not oxygenating well. The problem is that when people, you know, turn bad on, with this virus, it is quick and fast. And so I, I think that typically you'll see like typically day fives where you think, you know, you could be doing well day two, day three, and then also day four, day five, like this things go downhill really fast. So well, I I think there's still maybe some patients still, you know, still kind of going to the ER because that's kind of their habit. But we've really mm-hmm. been trying to stress not going to the ER to make sure that yeah. those that need to be in the ER can get the treatment they need and, and potentially admitted if they need to.
0: Yeah. Well, that that's kind of what happened to me. That's why I was so surprised because maybe Thursday night I had a dry cough. Friday I definitely did. Saturday is when... I think we talked and I started collecting a bunch of supplies. I got the hydroxychloroquine. Um, I got nicotine gum to help control my cough. I got a inhaler. Actually, I already had an inhaler on hand. I got another one as a backup. Um, I got decongestant to make sure that at least my sinuses would be clear and I could breathe. I mean, like I had a panoply of everything. I was ready and I thought, I would think I had a few more days, but then Sunday, it just hit. and so, It was maybe over a tr- two or three-hour stretch, and I could not breathe freely at all. I mean, it hit me really fast, and it surprised me. And, like, everybody was then in the dark because I felt terrible. Like, uh, support didn't know what was going on. The developers couldn't get in touch. I Like, I just basically disappeared. I think you and I exchanged a few messages over the next...
1: What four days? Yeah, I think so. I I don't I have to look at my at my message, uh, but uh, yeah, we were talking for a while, and then I I didn't hear from you over the weekend, so that's why I kind of hit you up this morning. I'm like, hey. How are yeah, you doing? well, it was it was crazy. I mean,
0: I just, I mean, I've had bronchitis and things, so I kind of know the progression of those. This one, this was not like that. Like it hit me really fast on Sunday, and then I was I was down.
1: Yeah, so um, I mean, it sounds it sounds like he probably had it. I mean, obviously, it would have been nice to, you know, know with a test standpoint, but maybe when the antibody yeah. testing is approved, you can get tested for the antibodies and see if you know they're positive or not. Not yeah. that it really makes a difference in the in the hindsight, but and, and Actually, I'll give you my go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh,
0: I was going to say I think it'll make a huge difference, but we'll go we'll make your point, and then we'll talk about
1: that. Oh yeah, um, I mean, for me, I was not necessarily in a similar boat, but I was in Australia. Um, and I was supposed to come back so like weekend, Mar- second week in march second week march i was actually at a at a beach right down the road for where tom hanks was and so we were there that day that that, that news you know hit the news cycle and so mm-hmm. on my way back we ended up cutting our trip short and then we came back and on my way back i started having cold symptoms nothing as 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 severe as you you had but then i ended up getting tested just because i was a healthcare provider and i needed to make sure i was negative i ended up being negative my symptoms got better within three days, and I was back in the office after the first week. Come back, but that's like the complete opposite end of the spectrum. So yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I still
0: like this morning before uh, when I first got up, I had to. Well, in the middle of the night, I needed my inhaler last night, uh, and then this morning I needed it a couple times too. And right now, I I can't. You know. You, if you've had a chest infection, you know, that feeling of when you go to take a full breath and you just can't open your chest cavity all the way. Yeah. You know, You know that feeling. Like right now, I'm, I still have that. I just, if I try to go for that full deep breath, I just can't get it. Um, yeah. And then that might contract a little bit. By this evening, that'll be tighter and I'll need the inhaler again. Um, but... Yeah, it, I mean, it wasn't fun, but I wasn't worried through any of it because I've had such terrible chest infections before and I've managed all of them. And like I said, if my face had started to turn blue and I wasn't getting enough oxygen, then I would have gone to an emergency. But, you know, that never happened. I was able to manage yeah. it.
1: Plus, the kind of systemic education of how that breathing is one of the real telltale uh, symptoms of this of this virus, viral infection, too. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm I'm actually really excited for antibody testing to be available hopefully soon here in the states. But yeah, I um, yeah. uh, I guess I'm going to assume you're going to be talking about herd immunity when it comes to antibody testing. But I think, uh, yeah, I'm 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 you know I'm really excited. Hopefully, we'll get the FDA approval soon here in the states, and we can get going on that as well. But yeah, I think
0: there's there's another reason, you know, my getting sick here was eye opening because of course. I'm on a tourist visa, so I really didn't want to go to the hospital unless I had to. So there was that. And, um, and then, so of course I'd been around my developers and all these other people. So we were trying to get tests for them. And the first time I called, they, they basically said, well, <clears throat> you know, unless you, you have severe symptoms, you know, we're not, we don't do any testing. And he was like, What the hell? You know, I'm in contact. This is the symptoms they had. I want to know because I've seen family and my family's 16 and over. And they're like, Oh, you know, wait, you know, wait till you have symptoms. So then he calls back and just lies and says, This is what's going on. I'm, ha- I'm having shortness of breath, whatever. And they just told him they're like, Look, we don't we we only test if you are admitted to emergency care. And he, he's like, but you know, I, I need to know. And they're like, you know, tough luck. You know, if, if you're hospitalized, you can get a test. Otherwise we don't test. Yeah. Which means the numbers here in Serbia, and this is really important. So I think the last time I checked, there were like 650 cases here. So that means 650 hospitalizations because those are the only tests they're doing. And so if only 4% of Of people are sick enough to be hospitalized, that means there's at least 16,000 cases here, which will be 50,000 cases by Sunday. And none of those are going to be recorded. And that's really important because that means every other country's effort to self isolate and try to get this thing under control will be totally meaningless the minute borders are open. Yeah, because people don't realize like Serbia is really important in this pandemic thing because it is a nexus for the East and West. China has visa free travel here. Russia has visa free travel here. Iran has visa free travel here. Oh wow. The UK has visa free travel here, the United States and all of Europe. This is one of the only countries where I can sit at a cafe and run into people from every part of the world. Now, have they done any travel
1: bans for Serbia? Yeah, are they are they,
0: they they finally they have closed it off. Okay. But when those open, if ninety five percent of your cases are untracked, yeah. then the minute that opens, yep, this nexus, guess what? It it becomes a very very big international node that then respreads it. And if you model this in cycles, so we were talking about herd immunity. So let's say you do flatten the curve. And even though we've never done that in history, let's say it works. And if you make it work by brute force, you're not going to get this replication rate that allows you to infect just as many people as you would have slower. No, what you're going to do is you're going to get it on the downward trend and you're basically going to have the virus peter out over time. It'll get a reproduction rate under one and it'll peter out. And that's great. The problem is you're still going to infect, say, 5% of people. So if you run this model and you run it in cycles, so the herd immunity for this, if you calculate it out, should be around 20%. So we have to have at least 20% of a population infected before we know this can't spread again. Well, infected and recovered. So the problem is when you run this model, let's say you flatten the curve and you only get Even just, I tried to be generous and say 5% of people become um, infected and immune. So now, if you turn off everything and a country like Serbia then starts seeds it everywhere again, you assume it would have its initial growth rate again. Now, the network is different because the original network that it went through, it can't because 5% of those people are already immune so if you assume an overlap of populations between those previously immune and new people and i assumed an overlap of 80 percent, which is really high what happens over time is instead of ending this with say 20 to 25 percent of the world's population infected you end up doubling that over time wow so the bullshit that we're doing now, and I'm just going to call it that because it is bullshit because none of it's tested. We know from models that it doesn't work. Doing what we're doing now actually in the long run is likely to kill twice as many people and shut the economy down for – if you assume my numbers, you get 5% the first time, 80% overlap, and you keep getting spread. Um, you're looking at at least four cycles, like we're seeing now. So you're talking about shutting
1: down the economy four times over the next two to three years. And and I assume and, we can we could take the caveat of China and maybe even South Korea and Germany to a certain degree, just because the the testing that they've done on a massive scale is completely different than what we're seeing, let's say in the United States or in Serbia.
0: Yeah. 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 And in Germany, Germany is a good example of the failure, too, because they're doing the massive testing, but they're trying to allow people to still go out and about and go to grocery
1: stores. And so they're still seeing increasing spread rate. I just pulled up the John Hopkins data. So Serbia, you're at 785 confirmed cases, uh, zero recovered, uh, active are 769 and 16 deaths. So. Yeah. And, and those are just so keep in mind, those are just hospitalizations
0: because they refuse to test anybody else. Wow. Yeah. And that was an eye opener of catching it here. Like, and, and like I said, Serbia is a very special place because of how it connects both sides of the world. And there are a lot of international travelers that come through here. I mean, I have met people from Iran and Russia and, well, China, obviously, because they come over here on their tourist trips. But, you know, it's not uncommon for me to run into people from all over the world, people that would normally never come in contact. If you're in the UK, you're not going to bump into an Iranian and you're very unlikely to bump into a Russian just because they don't have visa-free travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the United States, you're definitely not going to bump into an Iranian traveler.
1: No. Um, things unless like that. Like, unless you're like in Detroit. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so Serbia is, is really a key linchpin in countries like Serbia. I don't know what other countries have so much visa-free travel. Um. But, but Serbia is kind of a linchpin in this. And for them to not be testing as widely as Germany means that they undermine – Everything that every country is doing, even China's full lockdown,
1: is completely undermined by what's going on here. What about the surrounding countries on Serbia? Have you looked at what they're doing? I mean, I'm looking like maybe like a Romania or uh, I
0: ha- I think they're doing the same thing because their numbers their numbers are just so low. They should
1: have much much higher numbers. Yeah. So Romania has got 2100 about 2100 confirmed, 1800 active. 209 recovered and 65 deaths, so maybe they're testing a little bit more there. Uh,
0: well, they've also had it in Romania two weeks longer than Serbia. Got it. Yeah, so actually it's been in Romania as long as it's been in Germany.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, and Germany has 60-some-odd thousand now. Mm-hmm. And Romania, Romania has 2,000. That's
1: no. Bulgaria's got some low numbers. Uh, Macedonia's got some low numbers, Albania's in the 200s, so, you know. Yeah, and
0: I, I partly understand it because they're not getting kits, that's the thing, the, like, Germany won't export any of their testing kits at the moment to other European nations or the Balkans, Mm. so, so these countries have a very limited supply of testing kits. Um. And, and and that's what's interesting. Like, this is a world problem, right? And this, is, this world problem is the first time we've seen even European nations close their borders. So there is no longer an EU right now. There's just a bunch of city-states that have closed their borders, and they're not sharing anything with anybody.
1: Yeah, I mean, the same thing's happening in the United States in terms of the individual states competing against each other for resources as well. So. Yeah. That's you know? insane. That is insane <laughs> to me. So, but I mean, you know, the, the, even the, you know, in the great country of the United States, we still have like the lack of testing is just mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I.
0: Uh, I mean, all of this sounds bad, but in the long run, it's actually somewhat good. That the spread hasn't been slowed down in a lot of these countries you know you're going to get that 20 percent whether they want it or not and then this can't flare back up i mean so there is that plus side and i know the death tolls in italy and spain look horrendous and i know i'm sure you've seen this on the media over there i've seen some news reports they keep talking about oh this 21 year old person was on a ventilator and they're trying to make it sound like it should be terrifying for everybody but the mortality rates that are really high in Spain and Italy, 90% of deaths have been in people 70 years and older.
1: And, and you know, it's not unusual. I say it's not necessarily common for like young people to die of influenza, but they do. It just doesn't get yeah. reported. Uh, yeah. I just think that there are more younger people. You're seeing more anecdotes now on social media of younger people getting sick. Um right. just stories being told online and and I think that's you know that's kinda one of the reasons why that shock value is there. You're seeing maybe a higher number of, of you know quote unquote healthy people doing badly with the virus. Yeah. So that's Which, part of it as well, I think. Yeah,
0: and like you said, that happens with the flu. It's just not
1: it's not scary enough to make the news. Yeah, and I, well, and it's not as commonplace, but, I mean, I can tell yeah. you, you know, every year there's usually at least four or five deaths from influenza in my local hospitals from, from I mean, someone who's young, like in their 20s. It happens. Yeah, so. this,
0: the CDC publishes the numbers, and for age groups 10, 10 to 30, the numbers of deaths from the flu are not zero, and they haven't been. I mean, you can go back to any of the years. That's never been the case. Like, yeah. young and healthy
1: people die. Well, and, and I say by far, I'm not trying to downplay the, the COVID issues and the death of COVID. I'm just trying to make the comparison there that, you know, it's probably partly because we would not been, um, in, for lack of a better term, inoculated with that flu data. Uh, and so it, it, it doesn't really strike a, it, it. The the numbers that we see with COVID are more shocking to us because we're not used to seeing those numbers with influenza per se on a on a routine regular basis. Right. If that makes sense or not. Yeah, yeah it totally does.
0: And w- what I hate is there's this calming effect that they, they like terrify people with these stories of, you know, young people dying and blah, blah, blah. And 80% of the US is going to get infected and we're going to have 10 million deaths. I mean, it just keeps getting insane i i still am sticking by my original estimates from the modeling of if this thing just runs its course i still think we should only see like half a million deaths in the united states total
1: which is not great but it's not 10 million people either well i think it wasn't wasn't the, the the latest uh Numbers at uh, Fauci were saying are at least around 100 to 200,000 deaths. I think that was the initial kind of numbers that they were spewing uh, this weekend.
0: Oh, was uh, it? this So he lowered it because a couple weeks ago when he was talking, he said there's going to be 1 million to 2 million deaths. Oh, yeah. I remember that.
1: Yeah. I, I, I think they're using some of the newer modeling now, and that's what the numbers are coming with. But I, I, would, I, I tend to kind of agree with you know if it's, it's a half a million, I would not be surprised. Yeah, I think uh-huh. I think
0: that is that's an that's that's a prediction you get when well the model says anywhere between 90,000 and half a million. Yeah. But if you let it play out as it is right now, and so that means a, a lot of people are going to get sick. Unfortunately, we're going to have a lot of deaths, but we're going to get 20% of people infected and this thing'll dwindle off and we'll end up with only a quarter of the population sick. And we can put this behind us. Um, uh, yeah. And, and so it's frustrating to me that like so much work has been done since 2000 on modeling every single scenario. And then that became really pertinent with SARS. And right. the modeling even increased even more in accuracy of models and things. And it's like all of that work is just being completely ignored. Like completely ignored, I mean we know this this haphazard shelter at home, but go to the grocery store. We know absolutely that it
1: makes no difference, so why are we doing it? i mean I, I think i would I would concur that things if you're gonna do the um, if you're gonna do these type of interventions, they have to be aggressive. yeah, they have to be like China, yeah, and
0: i I mean, I don't know how many people would be willing to endure that though. Yeah, I mean, people
1: are having a problem right now with this sheltered home. (laughs) Right,
0: right. And and for me, it's a balance of, like, I believe in absolute self-autonomy, but with that comes absolute self-culpability as well. So I'm kind of of the mind of, okay, you know the risks if you go out, and if you contract COVID, then if we're going to just open things up, like like uh president trump wants to do for easter if we're just going to open things up people have to accept this reality look if you go out and you get sick you are the lowest priority for help
1: yeah uh, well he the was, yeah they changed the they changed it to now april 30th so that uh, okay. was announced so i think that was not either saturday or sunday so they, okay. they he, he walked that back yeah then the
0: news cycles are also changing so fast yeah. so my take on this is it's it should be as scary as it is. The media is the honestly the news media is is turning this into the terror that it that it's not.
1: And, I you know, I, I you know, given these, um, I think, like I said before, like lipstick on a pig interventions, I still think it's really important to stress that, you know, I would still, you know minimize your encounters with people in the public i mean like for me all i'm doing right now is going from from home to the office and back and trying to minimize i, I minimize the amount of times i go to a grocery store so if I, I, I i'm limited to at least once every 10 days if i can i'm trying to go mm-hmm. every two weeks Um trying to order as much stuff online as much as i can and um you know cooking from home i'm not really i'm not doing any doing any uh uh carry out um I will yeah. you know I've got some younger kids so sometimes we'll do some delivery stuff but I mean again we're just we I mean I we were in I mean I I you know I was at home from Thursday to Sunday and I was in the house the whole time essentially Yeah. Yeah. What's what <laughs> so, I said so, in my Oh, go ahead. So I just want to make sure we're not like we're not trying to um, say that what you shouldn't do, but it's just that on a real- from a from a reality sample from numbers, what needs to be done to really flatten the curve is probably much more aggressive restrictions. Exactly. Yeah, and that that's what I'd
0: said in uh, it was either my second or third podcast. I was talking about network effects, and it's like you know, if you're going out, you should go to only the exact same places with the exact same people. And right now, because everything's closed down, that basically means you're staying at home and going to just the exact same grocery store every time. I mean, that's really important because then you cut off all the network ties, even though you're going to the grocery store. Everybody who's going to that grocery store is in the exact same isolated network, and that's fine but i'm i don't think people are necessarily doing that
1: oh of course not yeah
0: <laughs> yeah well it's it's even harder here because i have, you know living in the states you're used to a few really big grocery stores well here like every and, and this is true of most european capital cities like there's a a decent sized grocery store basically on the corner of every building so it really spreads out in the network here because if you go to the one right next to your building and it's empty, then you go to the next closest one. And if it doesn't have what you want, then they go to the next closest one. And so the, the supermarket situation here creates a dispersed network that really is challenging unless you lock people into their apartment 24 hours a
1: day. You're probably Which, seeing the effect in New York City, right? It's maybe a similar situation, yeah. but in a, on a much higher magnitude. Yeah, and
0: in San Francisco, they have quite a few little little grocery things, but most of them are niche. So it's not like here we've got – there's four or five grocery chains, and every one of those chains basically has a store on almost every block. Just within a block of me is a, is a grocery store called Idea, is a grocery store called Shop and Go, is a grocery store called Maxi, is a grocery store called Aroma, and half a block further is another grocery store – is another Maxi grocery store. <laughs> and then – and if those don't have what I want, if I cross the street, I have another series of those if I just walk mm-hmm. down the street, except actually another one's added called Univer Export. And then a little bit past that, you have all the same grocery stores again. So like, yeah, you know, you get a lot of dispersing of people and I try to just go to one grocery
1: store. Same here. I, I have my one Trader Joe's. I have my one grocery store right by my house. And that's basically the only two that I go to. And, and like I said, I'm trying to kind of go once every 14 days if I can and keep it that long. So yeah, just to minimize exposure. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and even then, I try
0: to go towards the end of the day. well, they they close at three o'clock now, so I try to go at two thirty because basically no, everybody stopped shopping at that point. Yeah, So even though I don't have the best pick of things, I'm not in there with anybody else. Um, i'm I'm lessening at least my direct contact, even though I'm getting everything. that's
1: I, I would say that, the um, worst time to go is like first thing in the morning. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the line
0: <laughs> – because we have the lines here. Only so many people can go in, and the lines yeah. are wrapped around the yeah. the thing. It's – it's. I mean, it, it's crazy. I feel like news media and haphazard government interventions are making it much more terrifying than it needs to be. And I'm not saying it's not a, a terrible situation that we're in. But I feel like the terror factor is being way blown out of proportion. This isn't an Ebola world pandemic. I mean, that would be terrifying. Ninety
1: percent of people who get it die.
0: Yeah, that would for be sure.
1: terrifying. <laughs> I and you know, and I think you know, like you said, yeah, you might go at the end of the day, and maybe things are picked over. But you know, if you're eating ultra low carb, like you should be, I mean, yeah. what do you really need? You know, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, no, I've been getting, getting away really easily because
0: it's funny. The people stuff hoard is all the shit they shouldn't be eating. Like the cookies and stuff and pasta and, and, you know, I go to the ground beef and it's like total, I have no problem like getting as much ground beef as I want, as many eggs as I want ham. It, it's all there in ample supply. But if I wanted cookies or bread or pasta, or well, even rice like those shelves are empty every day, and I know they're restocked
1: every day. It's peculiar, like what is available and what's not, and then what brands are available and what's not. It's really interesting when if you just you, know, if you take a time to kind of look at the shelves, like like you can go to like the pasta aisle and you look at like Kraft mac and cheese, like not a box to be seen, but then you <laughs> see like another brand, and it's like they're they're full. <laughs> Oh, pardon the coughing. So it's it's I, I find that kind of amusing as well. You know, why wouldn't you? You know, if there's no Kraft Mac and Cheese, why don't we just get the alternative? And like, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same yeah. food. I mean.
0: <laughs> well, still the weirdest thing is toilet paper because Ugh. basically, toilet paper is manufactured all over the world. There's not one country that has monopoly on supplying toilet paper. Like it, it's the one thing that actually would probably never run out.
1: So I, I, what started I, I the toilet I paper hoarding? I can't explain it. I, I, I luckily scored some on Amazon. So <laughs> after trying to find some for a couple of days in a row, I said, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's kind of an American phenomenon
0: because that doesn't happen here.
1: You it didn't. I, I know that Australia was an issue. I know that even before I had left for Australia, there was um, reports of, of you know, certain items, including toilet paper, being like not on the shelf. Yeah, it's just, it's very weird to me.
0: And I mean, my thought is that the people who are hoarding it are just complete and total assholes. And so it would take a lot of toilet paper for them to completely cover themselves head to toe. Oh, for sure. Like, that's the only rationalization I can come up with, which is for why they need so much toilet paper, is they are just
1: total and complete assholes. But you had mentioned, like, the currency of toilet paper. I can tell you, there was, I read a news report. I don't remember where it was, but a restaurant was, you know, they had closed down. They were doing carrot and delivery. But with, their like, a certain amount that you spent, they would give you a free roll of toilet paper. And they were, their business was
0: booming. <laughs> that, that just makes
1: no sense
0: at all. Like, why does toilet paper become, of all the things, like, yeah. There's going to be a shortage of stuff in the world, and you're worried about wiping your ass. Like, water might not even be running. Uh, You know, I'm right there with you, man. (laughs) Like, I just do not comprehend it. Like, yeah, I don't know. People, People are strange. For sure. I mean, I'm panic buying. I'm, like, buying as many
1: eggs as I can get. Oh, yeah. I I went. I think uh, like two weeks ago, right when I got back from my trip, I went out and we bought like three, like three 18 packs of eggs just to make sure we had enough. Yeah. Yeah, they last a
0: long time. They're yeah. like packed with nutrition and fat. Like how much better could you get? Yeah. Oh, I think that's the last thing we should talk about because I never mentioned it because I've talked about being being ketogenic should decrease viral load in the body. And we talked about that, and that's through activation through AMPK. It downregulates basically all cellular transcription and translation functions. So viruses don't have as much machinery to work with to replicate. And then also, you and I had texted, I talked about caffeine. Yes. Caffeine, especially if you're not having it with carbs, really upregulates AMPK so my framework would predict that caffeine should help with viral load and oddly enough that question's never been addressed directly in the literature but i did find that they looked at caffeine consumption versus the severity of hepatitis b in the liver and they found that the the viral load and the damage done by hepatitis b was inversely correlated to how much coffee people drink Hmm. wow and well, that was not, reg- not re- coffee it was actually their cap they actually assessed their caffeine intake okay,
1: but it sounds like maybe coffee was the primary intake or uh yeah the that was the number one beverage yeah the, but and that was and that obviously that was all comers low carb medium carb normal carb you know whatever yeah. your carb diet was yeah unfortunately, yeah yeah. 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 So, so that's the only kind
0: of little bit of evidence there, but I imagine drinking caffeine, if you're also ketogenic, is probably, um, advantageous. So, like, don't give up your coffee if you have a viral infection. It's just another day,
1: it's another day for you and me,
0: basically, so just, you
1: know, rock rock star and keep calm. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, I
0: kinda, I upped my caffeine, actually. Just because the the little bit of carbonation just yeah. felt really good on my throat was part of it. Yeah.
1: But and I think rough, some of the yeah. I think that some of the ketogenic diet and viral. I think there's a couple of studies with influenza looking at that as well. I think that's where it, is that where that data is coming from? I think if I recall. Um, most of the stuff I found, like I
0: I actually hadn't heard it mentioned before. I was just thinking it should be, and in animal models, it's very distinctly works with viral infections. But I hadn't seen any any decent human studies at all.
1: I'll go back and um, if look you have any, that, that, yeah, I'll yeah, send them your year
0: But there were quite a few animal models where it severely decreased viral load. Um, and, and the thing that I didn't expect is it also increased uh, T cell activation and efficacy. T cells were more active and more reliable in identifying
1: the virus okay i think that's what i saw with influenza and low carb diet was that that specific scenario i wonder if it was in the animal studies if that's what you saw i gotta i gotta go back i I was it's been a couple weeks since i looked at the stuff so i think i can pull it
0: up okay yeah because i hadn't seen any human work and i i could have possibly missed it but i i didn't see any so all right. We're at the hour mark. Is there any closing, closing I, remarks? Or? I,
1: I know we didn't really talk about, we hinted at treatment, but again, I, I, Ooh, in general. I mean, we can talk, that, yeah. talk about that quickly. I'm sure people wouldn't mind hearing. Yeah. I mean, obviously there are several different drugs that are in, in trials. I think the most popular one that's been kind of uh, popularized, especially with uh, President Trump, would be hydroxy- hydroxychloroquine. And there's that that small study. I think it was in France, mm-hmm. but it wasn't controlled, um, right? I think, th- and so I, 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 it's still kind of being. I know there there are trials going on right now in the United States, but it's not it's not recommended to be widely prescribed. Number one, number two, it actually has an indication for lupus. So patients who actually need it for their lupus, um, it's creating a shortage for them. So that's the secondary issue. Um, Mm -hmm. Chloroquine was the other medication early on that I actually found research on probably back in January. Mm -hmm. Um, They had used it with SARS uh, 10 years ago as well. So I think probably the data on chloroquine, there's probably more uh, not necessarily um, um, COVID data, but correlational data with SARS with chloroquine. But again, that can be dangerous as well. Um, you know, to, to, you know right. One of the bigger side effects of chloroquine is a, a, special, a special type of anemia called aplastic anemia, which does not get kind of put forth in the news. Both drugs like hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine can cause issues with retinopathy and eyesight issues, which is one of the reasons why lupus patients who are on hydroxychloroquine, um, they need to have an eye exam once a year to make sure that's not occurring. And then I don't know if you heard the story here in Arizona. We had a couple that found um, a fish tank cleaner that had chloroquine as one of the ingredients. And so they went out and bought a bunch of this fish tank cleaner and took it orally as a preventative measure. And uh, they both ended up in the hospital. Uh, I think the husband died and the woman ended up like Uh, surviving an ICU. So there, there goes your uh, along with the toilet paper stupidity. Uh, there's that factor. Um, the other antivirals that are being looked at right now. So there was one that they, um, I know that one of the very first cases in the United States, the uh, physician had petitioned FDA for use for the um, antiviral to be used for Ebola. Um, but again, it's not yeah. widely available. I think there's rem, a couple of it. Remdesivir, I think. Something. Yeah. 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 And then I think China was looking at another one yeah. that they were testing, but again, again, um, probably too early for prime time. So again, it comes back to basically, you know, there's no real approved treatment. So let's keep that in mind. I, I can tell you um, from a personal standpoint, one things that I've been doing, um, there's no data in the literature to support these, but, I, I you know, it's in particular to COVID, but Uh, What I do, I've been continuing to take zinc like I normally do. I continue to take vitamin C like I normally do. Um, I've been using an acid blocker called cimetidine. So uh, there's no data with COVID, um, but I've used it for many, many years just for common cold. So if I get like sick and I get, I think it's a viral infection, I get kind of on those three things right away. If I get it on on board in time, usually um, I can avert the symptoms or I can certainly shorten the length of time of symptoms. So... Uh, and so those are kind of some of the things that I've been doing personally. I don't necessarily recommend them to my patients, but if they ask, um, I can kind of—I always I tell them this is kind of what I do. It's off-label. We have no data with COVID. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> I actually I couldn't get the. Uh, Someted. S- c- what was s- cemedid- it again? S- yes. Yeah, cemedid- said it to me. Name, Yeah. The brand Cemedidine name. Cemedidine. Is but it, yeah. <clears throat> It was funny, I could go and get uh, hydro- hydroxychloroquine over the counter. That's crazy. But then <laughs> the, 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 the acid is, is in here. Well, and I also got, so so I got the, the HCQ, and I did 600 milligrams of that a day, but I took it in three different doses. Um, I took it basically every eight hours, and that was because, like, it, it really, <clears throat> the first couple times I took it, it really kind of messed with my head. I, I had this weird fuzziness, and my eyesight was a little weird. I, I had told you about that,
1: Yeah. You know.
0: so I didn't want to take the big dosage, and, uh, and then the the inhaler was the big save, and, it, and I specifically got the albuterol inhaler, not the um cortisol-based ones.
1: Yeah, they, but like yeah, so. So the dis- albuterol will give you the, the, the albuterol. Al- yeah. Yeah, give you immediate relief. It's a, a rescue inhaler, is what we call yeah. it. So definitely, that's something that you can continue to use in general for respiratory symptoms with this virus. And there's no reason why you know, there's no reason why you couldn't use it. And and, and it's more of a supportive agent. Whereas this like the the steroid inhalers—they're more of a preventative inhaler for asthma and for emphysema. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it wouldn't give you any immediate relief because it takes about a week to kind of kick in, so to speak.
0: So I did that, and then that was about it. it stayed really ketogenic. I did—I I was actually able to get um, Z packs, but I did not take those. I didn't feel that my symptoms got severe enough for. Th- those and I didn't want to complicate the side effects that can come
1: with uh, HCQ that's yeah, so, why I didn't take those And in, in particular uh, yeah you can get a cardiac arrhythmia with, with the combination of those two drugs as a side effect so that's a good thing you didn't take it <laughs> or at least it's good that you didn't get taken yeah. up where you think you needed so I, so,
0: yeah yeah so I still got that now if I have any other if I can get pneumonia or something I I at least have that No, at this point uh, unfortunately, I did have to cut off uh, the end end part. There was a few minutes here, and Rocky and I both started cutting out of the recording, so I just cut that off. Basically, uh, Rocky was nice enough to wish me well and um, glad that I was recovering and hope that I don't take a downturn, which can happen. Um, it, it appears to be somewhat frequent that after the first... You have your first week, and then you have a week of feeling better, and then some people head south quickly after that. Uh, of course, I'm assuming that won't, won't be the case with me, uh, and I'm acting accordingly, trying to make sure that is not the case with me. Uh, but that was about it. Sorry you missed that. Uh, Rocky says goodbye to everybody. And now I just want to add on this, this addendum uh, to the whole conversation. Now, the first thing I want to touch on is when I talked about the models I ran to show what would happen if you did end this early and didn't get the full 20% population essentially immunized from the virus by getting them infected and they recover and that slows down the growth and makes it almost impossible for this thing to go off as a pandemic again. And one thing I predicated that on was the unlikelihood of ever getting a vaccine. If we, if we do develop an effective vaccine that changes everything, then what we're doing now could make a huge difference. The problem is, and why we should plan for there not to be a vaccine is the type of coronavirus that causes the common cold, they've been looking at creating a vaccine for that since the sixties. So 60 years, no success. SARS, which is another coronavirus that came out of China, Chinese wet markets, that virus. Also, they spent 10 years trying to develop a vaccine Four candidates. They were all failures. It was scrapped. And that's contrary to information. I, I saw an interview with Noam Chomsky who just said, oh, well, you know, look at how we handled earlier coronaviruses. They had SARS. They just developed a vaccine and it's gone. That's not what happened. There there has not been a vaccine yet. MERS, which is the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is also a coronavirus. There have been attempts to develop a vaccine for it as well. They have all failed. So to date in the history of humankind and vaccine development, No vaccine has ever been successfully developed for a coronavirus. So I have no idea why this one would be magically different. It could be. And we do have new technologies for developing vaccines. So it is possible. But at this moment, those new technologies were also used for the SARS vaccine and also for an attempted MERS vaccine, and they failed. So anybody who is holding out hope for a vaccine and thinks that it will end this pandemic and prevent it from ever coming back is either incredibly ignorant of our past history with coronaviruses and vaccines, willfully lying to the public at large, or just in general, ignorant of, of anything associated with epidemiology and pandemics. And I would put almost all newscasters in that arena because they've been saying ridiculous stuff, um, even to the point of claiming that the growth rate of the coronavirus is one of the highest ever at either two to four reproduction rate, a reproduction rate of two to four, which means each person who has it infects two to four people every day. If that were the case, by now in Italy, there would be more infections there would have been enough infections in italy already for every human on earth to have caught it 10,000 times that is not the reproduction rate we know that for a fact it's down around 1.15 that matches all the numbers it is not one of the most virulent viruses that we've ever come across it's actually right in line with the flu it's a little lower than the flu than the typical flu and even the flu from this year had a higher reproduction rate than the coronavirus, um, and that it's from that reproduction rate that you can figure out what herd immunity is necessary before it can no longer be transmissible throughout an entire community. And that's where you actually get eighteen percent, and you what you do is then you assume that maybe twenty percent of people don't acquire. Um, adequate immunity and also that there's going to be some downside to that curve and when you divide that out you get about 20 percent 23 percent somewhere in there of people need to be infected for this to stop so that was that Uh, so i so i want to make that clear if by some miracle we do achieve a um, (coughs) we do achieve a um a potential vaccine for the coronavirus and I'm not going to edit out that last cough just because I'm in a hurry to get this out but if, if we do then that that changes the game if not then what I said in the preceding hour during the podcast of killing twice as many people and having to shut down our economy potentially uh, four to five times over the next couple of years is the is a very likely scenario it's not the most likely but it is a very very likely it's a high probability scenario now as far as what I did and uh, I want to talk about the, you, you can find all I mean there's tons and tons of information about what to what symptoms come along with the coronavirus and uh, those are all pretty complete but what they what I haven't seen talked about so much is the aftermath and that is talked about in a couple places and I can attest to that, which is you're you're going to continue to have a cough except it will be very phlegmy and uh, pretty persistent. Uh, Of course, it gets worse at night. Uh, It's really bad in the mornings. And then throughout the day, I am coughing up a lot of stuff. It's pretty terrible. Um, And I am going to talk about that a little bit because that gives some indication of what this did to my lungs. Uh, And that's, that's because the phlegm has a very distinct light pink hue to it uh, which indicates that there was some tissue damage to my lungs Um, that's not uncommon for say pneumonia that is somewhat uncommon for the flu or bronchitis so it appears that I did have some tissue damage and what the consequences of that is what you probably have heard talked about in the aftermath is extreme lethargy. I am, I'm tired. Like I've never been tired before. I, I am napping a lot. And I just, I just feel like I almost have no choice uh, in the matter and uh, uh, still catching my breath. Uh, I was just reminded of it cause I had to do it now from, from talking so much. Uh, and that's probably going to take some time for me to recover from. Uh, tissue damage in the lungs is no joke. That's not going to be a quick fix. Uh, but it's also not going to alter my life significantly while that heals. Um, but that is that is a pretty pretty serious consequence of this, especially with it having not developed into pneumonia. Now what I did specifically medication-wise was I I was able to get hydroxychloroquine. You can get it over the counter here in Serbia. And I took 200 milligrams of that three times a day. So every eight hours, I was taking HCQ, 200 milligrams of HCQ. Um, Before that, I, I, I've been very strict ketogenic for weeks now uh, and I talked about it on another podcast that can that can lower viral load uh, in in an individual infected with any virus it, it can lower the viral load uh, so that's why I went ketogenic in preparation for getting covid I just assumed I would and to be honest knowing that I'm healthy and would come through it it was a, a bit of a a bit of a sacrifice on my part but also <clears throat> one of the one of those things that can help everybody get past this sooner. I'm not recommending that you have coronavirus parties and try to get infected um, but I just did accept the fact that I would probably get it and I didn't try to limit my life in any way and by not limiting my life I did catch it. Of course being in a major a capital European city with people from all over the world having been here and still here and stuck here, um, it, it was it was pretty likely. So like if you lived in San Francisco or New York, it would also be pretty likely. Uh, Chicago as well or Seattle. Those are all places where you're likely to get it. And so with the HCQ, every night before bed, I also did basically the 12-hour... Uh, Sudafed capsules so that's 120 milligrams of Sudafedrine. There's an equivalent here it's not Sudafed you can't get that here but I took that before bed uh, because I did notice I was getting a lot of sinus uh, clogging so it was I mean it was already really hard to breathe at night and uh, that just added to that torment And I also had an albuterol inhaler. And that, the way I used that was whenever I would wake up um, having extreme difficulty breathing. I mean, it, it was pretty extreme. It was extreme enough to wake me up and I was kind of gasping for air. So what I would do is I would exhale as fully as possible. And then inhale with the inhaler for one dose as fully as possible. And hold it for 10 seconds. Which I could easily do even though my lungs were were compromised. And then I let it out. I'd give myself about five or 10 minutes. If I w- wasn't breathing freely, I would do it again. And I would continue that process till I could breathe. And I never had to go over four doses at a time. Now, sometimes during the night, I was waking up every two to three hours having to do that. Uh, so so it was pretty intense in my lungs. But never did I feel like I did when I had pertussis a couple years ago, uh, which is whooping cough, where I woke up not breathing and I wasn't sure if I would actually be able to use the inhaler. Um, That was, I'll be honest, a bit terrifying to wake up in that state. Uh, I never had that experience with this. But I did have to use use it quite a bit. And on top of that, uh, I used the nicotine gum during the day. It did keep my coughing to a minimum, uh which helped save save my throat. I didn't get much of a sore throat from a lot of coughing or a lot of sinus drip particularly at night. And I that's pretty much all I did. You know, everything was centered around antiviral activity. Oh, and I did up my consumption of caffeine as probably I don't know. I'm not sure how many Red Bulls I was drinking again, but that was a that was the easiest convenient source of caffeine for me. Sugar-free Red Bull. Uh, so I don't know. I'm I'm gonna guess through the day. It wouldn't surprise me if I had up to a thousand milligrams of caffeine throughout the day. Uh, and ultimately. With all of that, so we can't say which thing helped the most. So the ketogenic diet, the hydroxychloroquine, or the caffeine, any of that. Uh, I did have a shorter, intense period than is more than is often described. You know, Sunday, half of Sunday, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday were bad. Thursday, I started to recover. Friday. I actually didn't need the inhaler throughout the day at all. I only needed it a couple times at night. I, I still have to use it at night, but only one time during the nighttime. I'm not waking up with as big of breathing problems. Um, so my so the duration of intensity was shorter. And who knows? That could be for any number of reasons. Um, but I think that covers everything. I just wanted to add this to the end. Uh, so everybody knows, you know, this is survivable, that that's definitely true. Ninety ninety five 95% of cases are not critical and don't need hospitalization. I was one of those, I probably sit in the closer to the critical end than the mild end in what I had, but my recovery was very quick. Uh, again, a ketogenic diet, I... I would bet anything on its efficacy for fighting any virus, particularly this one. And one thing that leads me to believe that is I've been ketogenic for quite a while, and at this point, it doesn't appear that I infected anyone else in my immediate circle. Now I was being careful, I was washing my hands, I wasn't getting close to people when I talked. But also, if, if you have a much lower viral load then you are less likely to shed virus that will infect other people. Uh, so that's that's why I really think that the ketogenic diet probably made a huge difference. Because when I would have first become contagious, I was already on the ketogenic diet, and I had quite a few interactions with some people. You know, going out for coffee that was still possible. Um, very close interactions, and nobody so far has developed any symptomology whatsoever. Uh, So that's on the plus side. Uh, And I think that's it. So I'm going to leave it with that. Uh, Hopefully people are becoming a bit more inured to the sensationalism of media and they're not being so terrified. And, you know, at some point we just have to decide when these pretty extreme measures, which are not having any effect in the way that they're supposed to, need to be ended and uh, that's just the truth of the matter. Italy, Spain, Germany, I mean, they've had these extreme lockdown measures in place now for a month and the growth rate is is not slowing down. If it worked, then the gro- the growth rate should have just really dropped off after the first two weeks of those measures and they haven't at all. They're still growing at the same pace. The United States, we're, we're seeing the same thing and they're not making any difference and that's because, the way they're being implemented, it's almost as if you're not implementing them at all. Uh, so, so we have to decide how far we want to take basically a placebo that maybe makes some people feel like the government's doing something when, in fact, really all it's doing is i i would imagine terrifying more people and making them more susceptible to infection um because of their limited ability to move around the fear that it's causing the in a, the loneliness that it's going to cause in some people um we, we've got to decide how to balance that out and i'm not suggesting that we go all out like china did in a complete and total lockdown isolation um, but it either has to be that, or we need to accept the reality that what we're doing isn't working. Uh, and so, so yeah, that's it. The, that's my take on all of this. You heard Rocky and I go back and forth in this in the last hour, and I hope that everybody finds all of this useful And the entire process. Even from my earliest podcasts on this, I I, I feel like I did a really good job of treating this objectively and pragmatically and not trying to be sensationalist, alarmist, or uh, overly optimistic about any of this. Uh, and this is how the process should have gone at every government level because they would have been months ahead in planning to where they are now. Now it seems like they're, they're changing, changing things every day. They're doing things that we know are ineffective. Uh, none of that would be going on. So I hope everybody finds kind of how this, how the scientific method should be performed, and what it can produce in analysis, even early on in a pandemic. Um, you you have a witness of this. I think this is this is either five, hour five or hour six of these things I've done. So you you've kind of have. A sense of that process happening in real time and how early on doing it correctly early and being as objective as possible makes gives you expectations for everything that happens afterwards Uh, so i i hope the process is also very interesting for people uh, to see how my process works versus what you've heard in the media or versus what you've heard from Of course, the YouTube gurus and all those people you can find. And uh, yeah, that's it. There's a bunch of other misinformation out there that I'd love to handle, but this is already getting pretty long. Uh, But I've covered all the important misinformation. So I hope everybody enjoyed and uh, stay safe and you'll hear more from me soon.